Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Let me give you just a couple of reminders about our schedule for these nights. This is our last um, night for this semester to deal with a specific doctrinal topic. We're going to deal with God's great goodness attributes tonight. We'll come back and re-begin, re-begin, restart this series in August, the third Wednesday night of August. August 17th will be when we pick back up, and we'll pick back up with God as Creator, and then we'll move into God's providence uh, and His sustaining work in the world. I I haven't decided yet whether we're going to spend any more weeks on the doctrine of God. We'll be close to the end if we don't finish that uh, last week of August, and then pick back up and, and work in the doctrine of humanity. And what I'm going to do over the course of next semester and the semester after is just simply walk through what I would walk through in my theology class. So we'll do the doctrine of God and the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of Christ, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of salvation, uh, and then move into the doctrine of the church and then doctrine of eschatology. Based on the timing and the pattern and how far we are, uh, you'll get through uh, Theology 101 and 102 uh, in about two or two and a half years. Uh, Based on the trajectory, how many Wednesday nights we're going to be, how long it'll be, I I promise to do my best to make all of them interesting. Some are just more interesting than others. I mean, there's just no way around that. But uh, we're going to continue to work through and just keep, keep that pattern up on Wednesdays when we're able to meet. So uh, thanks for being here tonight. Just to let you know a little bit, August the 17th is when we'll pick back up. The rest of the summer, I'd appreciate your prayers for me as I think ahead and plan ahead and uh, we work through our other summer worship series. So we're looking at God's goodness attributes. Uh, as I mentioned last week, that... <coughs> construction, and I'm sorry for the coughing and the cold. Uh, I do have a cold. It is not COVID. I took a test. I just want to like make everybody take a deep breath. Whether you're scared or not scared about that, I don't know. I just, I just want you to know that I took a test. It's a sinus infection, and so I would appreciate uh, your prayers. I will go as long as my voice will last tonight. It almost went out Sunday. Some of you noticed that in the 11 o'clock service. Um, so I, we'll go till we can't go anymore. So God's goodness attributes. Last week, we looked at God's greatness attributes. Those are attributes that are not like us or that we can't particularly relate to. So, for example, God's omnipotence, we can't relate to his, I mean, we can know his power, right? And we have a measure of understanding what power is like. We can't relate to that. that. That is not, we're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. The attributes we're going to look at tonight are ones that even though God carries them in a way that is unique to himself, they're attributes that we can relate to. We can experience a measure of the goodness attributes of God. And so we're going to walk through several of these tonight. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is a list that I think gives us a good bearing on understanding who God is. First, God is holy. God is holy. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, there is the testimony between Isaiah and God in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah had this vision of God and all of his 
glory. The angels were crying out. What were they crying out? Somebody. Holy, holy, holy. Anybody, do you remember any other place in the Bible where God is described in three statements like he's described in Isaiah chapter 6? He described his love, love, love. He described as righteous, righteous, righteous. That's a unique statement to the book of Isaiah. It's a unique affirmation. And that affirmation, by the way, is not Isaiah's statement about God. In the text, it's an angelic pronouncement that is in heaven where God is described as holy, holy, holy. Many commentators, theologians over the years, have discussed the holiness of God as his preeminent relational attribute. His majestic holiness. Meaning that he is other. That's what holiness means. He is set apart. He is different. It carries with it the idea of transcendence. And yet holiness as a part of his otherness. Being absolute righteousness and glory. And, and, and being sanctified in the sense of being set apart. That is something that we can relate to because that is something that God is doing in your life and in my life. As followers of Jesus, the desire of God from the beginning point of your salvation experience is to sanctify you. Uh, We'll deal with this specifically when we get to the doctrine of salvation, but salvation is justification, being made right with God or declared right with God. And it is also sanctification, the process of God making us holy as how He is or as who He is. So God is holy. He is set apart. He is absolutely right and holy in His person. That's who He is. It's a self-evident part of His um, existence and attribute. Notice this, uh, this phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook. That's Isaiah 6, 4. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. I'm pretty sure I'm going to preach this text in a sermon series that I'm going to pick up in the fall on the idea of worship here at our church. But just a couple of notes here about this text. Isaiah was a prophet. So his primary task was what? What do you think it was? Preaching and teaching. And when he was in the holiness of God, in the presence of the holiness of God, what did he call out as his primary sin? His lips. What he said. Being in the very presence of God, he understood that even his calling, even his responsibility as a communicator of thus says the Lord to the people of Israel, he was a man of sin. And what did the angel do? He took a coal... From an altar, an altar in heaven that had experienced, if you look in the book of Hebrews, the altars in the Old Testament were pictures of the heavenly altar in in heaven. It's a picture of that. That that coal that had 
been made righteous through the atoning blood of a sacrifice, that angel put that um, coal on Isaiah's lips and atoned for his sin. One thing that we need to grasp with the holiness of God, he is more holy than we can ever imagine. We need to see that, we need to meditate on that, we need to think on that, which means that if we respond appropriately, it will be like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am undone. And there are all sort of ways we are undone. The beauty of that, though, is that as soon as we recognize our lack in the presence of God's holiness, God offers redemption. It's one of the beautiful things about God's goodness to us. He doesn't just show himself in this I am distant, other, different fashion where we are at arm's length. No, when he shows us who he is in his holiness, he invites us to receive cleansing and forgiveness and redemption. God is holy. God is righteous. That's the second blank. Erickson defines God's righteousness as God's holiness applied in relationship to other beings. It's his holiness worked out. Whether it's related to his law, what he says, righteous acts, or whether it's related to how he interacts with others. So God is righteous. You can see that in Psalm 19.9. You can also see it In Romans chapter 3, we'll read Romans 3 in a moment. Let's move to the third attribute. God is not just righteous, He is just. This simply means that God makes correct and right judgments with regard to His creation. He is just when He judges because He is good and He is also holy. This is a tremendously important attribute for God. Our world, as I mentioned in my sermon Sunday, cries out for justice. Every kind of corner of, you know, American society, probably societies in other places, want justice. We want things to be right. Well, we want things to be right based on our frame of understanding, what we want. But what the text means when it says that God is just, it means that whatever God says, no one will be able to argue with. God is supremely just. And he describes how in Romans chapter 3, or Paul describes it, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified by His grace as a gift or and are those who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and who believe in Him are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be, get this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, if you and I are not careful, and we ask for God's justice to be shown to us, God's justice 
is that you and I will spend eternity separated from him in eternal punishment. We, we got to be careful what we ask for. God's justice means that we're separated from him. So, because we're sinful, we don't match up to the standard of God's holiness. We don't match up to the expectations of God's righteousness. We fall short of that. If God were just toward us, we would suffer punishment. Deservedly so. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. We don't do him any favors. His justice is to separate us from him forever. But what God did in order to show us grace and mercy and compassion and bring salvation, he sent Jesus to take our place. This is the beauty of the cross. We'll get to this in a few, in a few minutes as well with different of these attributes of God. Jesus stepped in the way of us and God's justice. Jesus took God's justice by dying on the cross for our sins so that when we believe in Jesus, God is just to justify us through, his, through our relationship with Christ. In other words, God never, ever, this is, this is so important for all of our interactions with God. He never relates to us on the basis of us or on the basis of our deeds. He always relates to us on the basis of Jesus Christ and his perfections and Jesus Christ standing in our place. That's why when we go to God in prayer, we pray to the Father through the Son. But that's also why when we go to God in prayer, we can go to God in prayer boldly. I mean, I'm going to come back to this in the takeaways, but it's all here in these attributes of God. He's, he is just. He justifies us. He gives us the right to go to Him through Jesus Christ. That's why it, it demands that we respond in kind in the sense of humility and surrender, but also in boldness because Jesus is our mediator between God and man. Let me give you another attribute. God is true. Hebrews 6.18 says that God cannot lie. We lie all the time. Well, all the time. That's an exaggeration. I've got kids. I'll just stop there. How about this? You have kids. How many times have you given your child or grandchild a promise and not fallen through? I'm just being honest. God doesn't do that. He can't do that. A lie is inconsistent with his nature. God is truth. He is true. John 14, 6, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're pretty concerned in Christian circles about what is true. And if you get outside of Christian circles and kind of the the way our predominant worldview of this world wants to operate, truth is personal. It's not absolute. It's individual. So you have your truth and I have my truth. That's the way the world operates or much of, of modern worldview operates with regard to truth. That's why you can have all the craziness out there that doesn't make sense to us normal folk. You know, truth is biology. We'll talk about that when we get to the doctrine of humanity. But you, you can't argue with those things that are factually stated. Yet our society argues with all of those things because I can determine my own truth. Folks, the way truth works is it is propositional. It is absolute. 
but truth is also personal. Because God is truth in the person of Jesus Christ. See, one of the reasons why, and I'll just make this connection here. One of the reasons why our society twists truth to make it relational, or make it personal rather, like I get my way and you get your way and you do your thing and you do my thing, is because we're trying to make truth palatable. We're trying to make it fit what we desire. We're trying to make it relatable. The problem is some things that are true are just not kind or nice. They, they just are, okay? And that makes truth hard. It, it, if, if you think about biblical truths, for example, God is holy, you are a sinner. That means you're in trouble. It means I'm in trouble. That is a hard truth. But the Bible just doesn't describe the truths of the gospel in doctrinal format, meaning this is a doctrine that we hold on to. The Bible describes truth as a person. And the most beautiful of persons, the most glorious of persons, Jesus Christ himself, who, yes, he is the very embodiment of truth, but as John would describe in his gospel, he is full of grace and truth. God is true. How about this one? God is faithful. If you look at the book of Hosea, we won't read the whole book, obviously, tonight. God is depicted as a faithful husband with a wife who is unfaithful. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul describes God this way, He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. He is faithful. Perfectly faithful. He's never broken a promise, never broken a covenant. He will not leave us. He will hold on to us. He will keep his promises. Another reason that we ought to pray boldly is when God says what he says, he can't lie, he is the truth, And he is faithful to accomplish what he says he will do. And the reason, folks, that we ought to read the Bible over and over again, and the reason we ought to reflect on the activities of God throughout Israel's history and throughout the early church, is because what we notice as we read Scripture after Scripture, story after story, is we notice the faithfulness of God. And God has kept his promise To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the people of Israel. He kept his promise to judge when they broke his law. He kept his promise to bring a remnant back when they were in exile. He kept his promise. He is faithful over and over and over again. The reason that's so important for us living today is because who God is, is who God has always been and always ever will be. God is just as faithful to you as he ever was to Abraham. He's not different. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we get it in our minds that somehow God's not going to do the same things he did 2,000 years ago. God is doing those same things in the, in, in maybe in different ways, but he's doing those things in the world today. He is faithful. End of story. And so what, what that should drive our level of trust and response to the God that... that we love and the God that we claim loves us. We just have to believe what Scripture says and is affirmed. God is faithful. 
How about this? God is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We'll talk about that in a minute. But God is mercy. Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. I love how in one verse Isaiah testifies that God is gracious Merciful and just. What does mercy mean? It means that God's not giving you what you deserve. How many of you have been merciful to your kids? I mean, they deserved a grounding for life. They deserved a tanned hide. I think I heard that phrase a lot growing up. My dad's here. I don't know if he remembers saying that, but he did. What do our kids deserve? But what did you give them? You gave them mercy. You didn't give them what they deserve. Well, that's who God is. And he delights. Listen, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. In other words, it is, a very, it is the very depiction of the nature of God. If we can call it his nature, his attributes, who he is. And, and, and get this, you, you, need to, you need to remember this. These are not just definitions about God's activity, okay? These attributes are not merely God acts with mercy or acts with justice or acts with holiness. These are definitions, biblical definitions, that are intrinsic to who God is in his self-definition. He is mercy. He exalts himself to do what? To not give you what you deserve, That is just a beautiful picture of the greatness and the majesty and the wonder of God. That he would stoop down, exalt himself in stooping down, to not give us what we deserve. What we deserve is a sinner's hell, separation from God, is absolute judgment from God. What we deserve is God turning his back on us and rejecting us. But that's not what we get. We get a relationship with God because he is... He is merciful, but he is the very definition of mercy. How about the next one? God is grace. God is grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not getting what you deserve is mercy. Getting what you don't deserve is grace. An acrostic would be God's riches at Christ's expense. God blesses abundantly. It's a gift. The word grace in the New Testament is charis. It it means gift. It is a grace. And it is not just, just to grasp this, it is not just something that God gives as if it is something that we're to experience. When you think of Roman Catholicism, for example, The sacraments are times where the Roman Catholics believe there's a transfer of grace that takes place. So when you go to Mass in a Roman Catholic church, they actually believe they're partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus. And they believe that that event, that Mass, is an experience of grace. Same thing is true when they do the sacrament of baptism. 
that grace is transferred. But that is a misunderstanding of grace, a clear misunderstanding of grace. Because grace is not merely something that is received when we do something in Christian life. That, That really discounts the idea of grace. Grace is a person. God doesn't just give us something and experience. God gives us himself. That's why we use the term ordinance and not sacrament. Because here's the reality. If you already have Jesus, which at your conversion, you put your faith and trust in Jesus to be your only Lord and Savior. That is, that is what we do when we come to faith in Christ. If you've done that, received Jesus, and he's entered into your life through the Holy Spirit, you cannot get more grace than you got when you got saved. In the sense of, if you're talking about a meter filling up grace, you can't. There's nothing else that you can get that's more grace than you receiving Jesus. The experiences that are filling up of the grace, being filled with the Holy Spirit, are certainly experiences that are true in the Christian life. But they're, they're not, they're, we're not to look for the experience, we're to look for the person. Jesus himself. Let me, let me read, read a statement about this. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I would commend this to you. This has been tremendously helpful for me. I'm referencing it in some of the sermons I'm preaching coming up. Listen to this. Jesus doesn't want us to draw on his grace and mercy only because it vindicates his atoning work. He wants us to draw on his grace and mercy because it is who he is. Meaning that you and I, when we reflect on what we didn't deserve, getting what we didn't deserve, or not getting what we, did, we don't deserve, rather, the mercy of God. And when we reflect on the grace of God, getting what we don't deserve, and we, we draw near to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just want us to receive those as if they are kind of uh, theological terms and experiences. He wants us to think about those in light of being near Him. In other words, grace and mercy are reflections of the personal nature of God in our lives. To draw near to Jesus is to draw near to His grace and mercy. And there's no way around it. God is grace. Finally, as an attribute, God is love. 1 John 4, 7. I mentioned this a few weeks back when we talked about the Trinity. Love is an other-centered attribute. Agape means other-centered, so the Trinitarian God is the only God that can be love because it's, love is relational. God is love. We want to believe that God is love. He is. That's what the Bible declares Him to be. So these attributes should motivate us to think about and follow Jesus. Now let me give you three takeaways. We're going to read a, a verse or a passage that links to one of them. Here's what I want you to do. First, consider God's goodness and fear the Lord. Why should goodness lead to fear? Because when we really think about what God has done, what Jesus has done, it should put us in awe of Him. Luke eight twenty two. It's the story of Jesus when He stilled the storm. One day Jesus got into a boat with His disciples and said to them, let us cross to the other side of the lake. So they set out. They sailed... They sailed and he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. I think this, this is in your handout, by the way. A windstorm came down on the lake, and they were, 
filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Now, a couple things about this story. First is, many of the disciples were fishermen. They had been on the sea in storms before. For people who had been on the sea in storms to come wake the master that they thought they were dying, it had to be a pretty bad storm. All right? I mean, Peter's this brash, I'm going to go with you to death kind of guy. If he's going to go to Jesus and wake him up in the middle of the storm, it has to be pretty bad. We're perishing. They were afraid that they were going to die. You catching me? You ever been there? You ever been afraid? We all have. Now listen. Master, we're perishing. He awoke. And in his goodness, and we can see his goodness all over this. In his goodness, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased and there was calm. So in Jesus, in his goodness, stopped the storm. Made everything calm. Notice what happens. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? And he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Their fear was more at his stopping the storm than at the storm. If we really, honestly, take a long look through the Scripture at the holiness and the righteousness and the expectations of God, and then we look at what God did in His holy righteousness to bring us to salvation through Jesus Christ, to not give us what we deserve, mercy, to give us what we don't deserve, grace, all because He loves us. If we take a look at that, just think on that, and we consider God's goodness in those attributes, we should be very afraid. I don't mean afraid in the trembling he's going to destroy us sense, but I mean afraid in the sense that that's who God is and he would do that for me. There should be a sense of awe. There should be a sense of worship. There's a reason I titled this this uh, doctrinal series, Doctrine and Devotion, is because when we grasp what the Bible tells us about who God is, it isn't just for us to sit in some kind of lecture classroom and understand more about God so that we can talk about the greater experiences uh, or the greater uh, ideas of Christian theology and doctrine. I mean, it's better. it's good that we know God more. I, I think we all ought to drive our intellectual, the intellectual depths of our minds to grow deeper in our understanding of God. But the whole point of this is not to be smarter. The whole point of this is not when I teach at the Bible college for our Bible college students to be able to argue about the other parts of God's nature, His sovereignty and providence and how that works with human responsibility, though that kind of stuff happens. The point is that when we see God in His greatness and glory, we'll pause and we'll worship out of fear and out of reverence. I mean, really, try, try. I realize it's a few days until Sunday, and I won't be here Sunday. 
Gary's going to be preaching, but I hope all of you are here Sunday worshiping. Here's what I want you to do. When you enter into the worship service Sunday, enter into the worship service thinking about God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, God is merciful, God is grace, God is love. He did all this to show his greatness and glory and brought me into a saving relationship with himself. You know what that's going to do? Just throwing this out at you. It will open your lips to sing praise to the one who saved you. It will put a smile on your face, recognizing that you don't deserve to be here. It will give you joy as you look around and think, man, God was gracious to somebody else too. Thank goodness he was gracious to them because they needed it. (laughs) And thank goodness he was gracious to me because I needed it. You know what that does? That gives us a whole different sense of interaction with one another. Because you're not here because you're better than me. And I'm not here because I'm better than you. Folks, we're not even here because we're better than most. We're here because God is gracious and he forgave us. End of story. It's not about us. So the reflections on these attributes lead us to consider his goodness and fear the Lord. Athanasius of Alexandria put it this way, For God is good, or rather, of all goodness, He is the fountainhead. Anything good, anything good and right, anything beautiful, anything glorious, and we didn't even go there in these attributes, with His beauty, anything that is good and beautiful comes from God Himself. Let me give you the second takeaway. Reflect on God's goodness and thank the Lord. Take a few minutes today or tomorrow, later this week, Just reflecting on God's goodness to you and thank Him. I can't remember which book I read this in recently. It's a marriage book. Talking about interacting with your spouse. And uh, you know how we as husbands and wives, we kind of get caught up in our own responsibilities and habits. And you 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 got your tasks that you do and she's got her tasks that she does. And you kind of... She's kind of getting a pattern. I mean, just is what it is. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating in the book is the recommendation or article or wherever I was reading, recommendation was thank your spouse for the things that they're already going to do whether you thank them or not. Like the normal things, just thank them for it. And it, it's, it's kind of that hospitable nature. I've tried that. And, you know, it, it's, it's a whole lot nicer when I say to my wife, thank you for making dinner, even though I knew she was going to make dinner, and I didn't have to ask her to make dinner. I knew it was just, it was her night to make dinner. It's the way her schedule worked. She was going to make dinner, but just thank her for making dinner. Listen, that's the attitude we should have toward God all the time. He's always going to be holy. He's always going to be just. He is always going to be righteous. He is always going to be merciful to you, even though you don't deserve it. He is always going to be gracious to you, even though we don't deserve it. He's always going to be loved to us, even though we don't deserve it. You know what we should do sometimes? We should just pause and thank God for that. Instead of going to God with our gimme list, here are my, here, here are my prayer, prayer things that I need you to do, God. Maybe we just pause sometimes and thank God. God, here's what you've done. Here's who you have been to me, and I just want to thank you for that. Great relationships are built on thanks. God doesn't have to thank us for anything. We have to thank Him for everything. Last takeaway. Remember that it is God's goodness which allows you to relate to Him. 
God wanted to, he could have just been great. We haven't really gotten into this, and I don't know that we will. I mean, I guess we can at some point in Providence, sustaining work. God's actions are not contingent on us. Meaning that God didn't have to do anything. The only thing that God ever does is what God says he is going to do. The only one that binds God is God. When God says, I will do, he binds himself to a promise that he makes. He doesn't have to relate to us. Do you get that? He doesn't have to care about us. He says he does. He says he will. I mean, he promises that. But it is God's goodness that allows us to know him. And when we really think about that in the scope of all that's going on in our world and all that's going on across the sphere of people on our planet, that God would let you be born here. In a place where somebody would tell you about God and his greatness and your need for salvation. That he would give you the privilege to enter into a relationship with himself. That's the only way we can relate to him. It's not because God liked you better than he liked people on the other side of the world. He even told the people of Israel this. He said it all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you were special. And then he went on to say, you're stubborn, you're hard-hearted, you're unbelieving, you're unfaithful, you're faithless, you've seen me do all these things, you're little, you're small, I chose you because I wanted to show you that I'm good. Folks, that's exactly how God relates to us. It's based on his goodness. It's really important. Because it means that all of us are replaceable God doesn't need any of us. His world, his church, his mission, his glory, his greatness are going to be just fine when you're not here. And they're going to be just fine when I'm not here. I'm not the protector of anything that has to do with God. I'm the receiver of God's goodness and God's graciousness. That really sets us in a place of, that should, should be a place of humility and worship. And surrender. He relates to us not based on us, based on Him. Let me close with this in that sense. The next time you go to God in prayer, the next time you come to church, the next time you you worship God in song, don't ever let yourself think that your behavior the last three days is what determines whether or not God is going to relate to you. It's never based on you, and it's never been based on you. God's mercy, goodness, grace, love, kindness, righteousness, holiness is never based on what you bring to Him. Should we bring things to Him? Absolutely. Without question. Worship is bringing a sacrifice of praise. But God doesn't relate to us based on what we bring or based on who we are. He always relates to us based on who he is. That means that his relationship to us will never change based on us. See, sometimes we get lost in our minds that, man, I can't pray today because I've blown it yesterday. 
I can't ask God to save my grandchild because I know what I was doing yesterday. I, I, why, why do I read the Bible today? Because I didn't read the Bible yesterday. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, let, me, let, me, let me complain as a pastor for a moment. Can I do that? Nobody will be listening on the podcast that this applies to. You know how much it bugs me that people haven't come back to church? Some haven't come back to church since COVID. But they go everywhere else and do everything else. They won't come back to church. Bless them. Well, they'll have to answer, for God, answer to God for that. You know why some are that way? I wonder if they're having this kind of conversation in their mind. Well, I've been out a year. Been out two years. They don't miss me. And would God even accept me if I came back today? How many times have you wondered if God's going to listen to you today because of your lack in the past week or months or years? That's not who God is. He doesn't relate to us based on us. He relates to us based on who he is. That's the gospel, folks. That's the good news of of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's biblical doctrine. And so here's what it means. When you go to God in prayer tonight, just remember, you're not going to him based on how good your day was. It doesn't matter how good your day was or how bad. It matters who he is. So he accepts us through Jesus. He'll do the same tomorrow. He'll do the same the next day. He'll do the same the next day because he doesn't change. Our job is to humbly receive what he's told us and respond to him as such. Now that should drive our behavior. This is what Paul got criticized for in Galatians. It's all of grace, it's all of grace, it's all of grace, so why should we behave? Why should we do good? Well, we should do good because it's all of grace, it's all of grace, it's all of grace. It's a motivating factor that I'm going to do this out of thanksgiving and gratitude. We don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we already have God's favor through Jesus Christ. Amen. Love you. Thank you for being here tonight. Pray for us as we travel. This upcoming week, pray for Gary as he preaches, Tad as he comes back, and Josh as they come back from camp. Danielle, we've got a lot going on in the life of the church, Bible school and those kind of things. I am not going to shake your hand as you leave because I don't want to share with you what I've got. As I mentioned, it's not COVID, but still, uh, I love you too much to give you what I've, what I've received from my son who had it for six minutes. and. She loved that. They get it. They get it and it's there and it's gone. And then we get it as parents and it's there and it's there and it's there and it's last. Maybe I'll be done with it by the 19th when I come back to, to preach. You pray that I am. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us, for your goodness and mercy and your compassion. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. I pray that your greatness and your goodness would drive us to a place of humble surrender and worship, praise, trust, and thanksgiving. You've heard our requests tonight. We're going to echo them in the days ahead. And so we trust that based on your glory, your goodness, your providence, your absolute authority, you're going to intervene according to your will. And we're going to thank you for whatever you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.